So we continue our study on hope, the hope of a future. We've looked at the hope of our healing, the hope of a calling, and now the hope of the future in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would remind you that if you're new to Hebron and you'd like some more information, we'd love to greet you and meet you right over here uh, in this corner of the building right after the service. We have a gift for you and Jerry will tell you everything you need to know. Let's uh, turn our attention now to John chapter 21, the last chapter of John. You may remember Jesus has been resurrected. You may remember that he has already appeared to 500 witnesses. He's already been touched by Thomas. Uh, This is uh, the final viewing of Jesus before his ascension. And we pick it up in verse 15. I'm tempted to go back to uh, verse 1, but I won't. I will refer to a couple of things that relate Just a quick overview. They're out fishing. Peter said, I want to go fishing. They're out on the boat fishing. They catch nothing. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament how often these fishermen uh, are lousy at their job. Uh, They can't catch anything. Jesus shows up on the beach. He prepares a charcoal fire. He's got uh, fish cooking there. And he invites them to come and have breakfast. And he says to them, bring some fish that you've gotten. And we'll talk about that in a minute. We pick it up in verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, is it I who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Sixty years ago in London, there was a concert that was very unusual. A man was to play the violin, and it was sold out. Even 60 years ago, even though they didn't have uh, iPhones, they had things to do, and, and yet they were there at this concert. They sold it out. A violinist. And the reason they were there was because he was going to play a $1,000 instrument. And so when the curtain went up and the man showed up with his violin, he began to play, and the people instantly were happy that they had come. They were mesmerized by the music. They'd never heard a violin sound like this. One number, two numbers, and then during the third presentation, in the middle of the piece, the violinist stopped. 
he took the violin from under his chin and he began to smash it on the stage. Now, that may be done in a rock concert. But who would have ever thought of a classical violinist smashing his instrument? People were stunned. They sat there totally silent. And the man walked off. About two minutes later, the stage manager came and said, Ladies and gentlemen, we just have a brief intermission. The maestro has gone to uncase his $1,000 instrument. He's been playing a $50 one he bought at a discount music shop. And when he came back and he put the bow on those strings, it sounded exactly like the old $50 instrument. You know why? When it comes to the music, it's not the instrument that matters. It's the master. Years ago, USA Today editors did a little piece. It was one of the things they called a snapshot on the USA. And they asked this question. If you could ask a God or a supreme being one question, what would it be? 12% said they didn't know. 7% said we'd ask about extraterrestrial life. But far and away, the most frequent answer was, more than 30% asked, What's my purpose? Why am I here? You know, today, purpose is like a cottage industry. We've got purpose-driven lives, purpose-driven churches, purpose-driven marriages, purpose-driven pets. And we act as if it's new. Jesus spoke more about purpose than any other thing. One time he said, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? You file that under purpose. At another point, he would say, which one of you would follow me without first sitting down and counting the cost? You file that under purpose. But of all of the places in the ministry of Jesus where purpose is the focus of Jesus' remarks, there is no place more poignant or greater than in today's text. For everyone he transforms, he imparts to them a new purpose. And it's that purpose that is our hope for the future. So let's dig in. First of all, notice it all begins with following. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now remember, this is after Peter has betrayed Jesus. Before that, he had said to Jesus, though all of these men betray you, though all of them fall away, I will never fall away. And yet he betrays Jesus three times with curses. Now think about who this man is. He is a fisherman 
from the town called Bethsaida, which was on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing village. Every village in Galilee had a synagogue. And every synagogue was the center of the town life. It was a place of worship. It was a place of instruction. Every child, boy and girl, would go to the synagogue at age five to begin to be taught. The boys would learn the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The girls would spend their time on the writings and the Psalms. And at age 12, the girls would begin to be married. The boys would continue their study until age 15. And at 15, the best boy students would be permitted to go and find a rabbi that they wanted to be just like and to ask the rabbi if they could be a follower, a disciple. The vast majority of boys never got to that point. They washed out. They were not considered by the leaders of the synagogue to be academically erudite. They didn't seem to be ones who would work as disciples, and so they were told to go find a profession. And so you've got Peter, who has gone back to fishing. So have all the others. Those 12 that followed Jesus, none of them qualified to be a disciple. They all washed out. None of them were disciple material. If ever they had a dream to be a disciple of a rabbi, they had forgotten about that dream long before. They were engaged in tax collecting. They were engaged in fishing. They were engaged in being a zealot. Think of it. Everyone Jesus chooses. Every one of them that Jesus calls were not qualified. And you know something? Neither are you. None of us qualify. And that's the hope that every one of us has. None of us qualify to be like Jesus. None of us make the grade. None of us can go up to Jesus and say, I deserve to follow you. None of us can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit unless he himself does it. He chooses us, he calls us, he equips us, he transforms us. It's all on him. You know something, there's a lot of hope in that. And second, notice our hope comes in our falling. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now notice the timing of this. Jesus tells Peter these things after he's restored him. After he removes his guilt. After he's given to him every reason to drop his shame. And notice what Jesus says to him. The very thing Peter sought to avoid by betraying Jesus, his own death. Jesus says, Peter, I've appointed you to die for my glory 
2,300 years ago in the army of Alexander the Great, there was a man who was a fierce fighter. And interestingly, he had a fatal disease. And so every time the battle raged, wherever it was the hottest, that man was found in that place. And after a time, his commander came and said to him, Why is this? Why do you look for the hottest battles? The man said, That's easy. I have a death sentence. I'm, fa I'm terminal. Why shouldn't I go to the hottest part of the battle? I'm going to die anyway. His commander was so taken with his attitude that he enlisted a physician to heal him. And after three months, his disease was gone. And so was the soldier. Every time the battle raged, he went to the back. He wasn't found anywhere near the front lines. Why? Because his main goal in life when he knew he was going to die was to fight. Now when he thought he could preserve his life, he sought nothing close to a battle. You know what Paul says? He says about himself, I die daily. You know why? Because he understands that the follower of Jesus who suffers most is most like his master. Not only that, the disciple, the follower of Jesus who suffers most is used by Jesus most. Think of it. The more you fall the more the audience can see the master and not the instrument. Then third, notice the fishing. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Now notice Jesus doesn't need their fish. John says he already has a fire there, and on that fire are some fish. But Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. Notice also that these fish that they just caught are not their fish, they're Jesus' fish. They fished all night and caught nothing. It's only when Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat, that they catch anything. Now here's something I bet none of you know. There are two primary kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee, in Jesus' day and in our day. First of all, there are little fish, small ones, and they're caught at night, and they're caught by using a net, and they're called sardines. Have you ever heard of sardines? Those are the fish that Peter and the others have tried to catch with the nets. At night, sardines, and they've been unsuccessful. The other kind of fish are not caught at night. They're caught late in the day. They're larger fish. They're not caught by nets. They're caught by hooks and lines. They're called tilapia. Now, isn't it interesting 
that John tells us immediately before the text we read that Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught. There are 153 of them, and they're called large fish. They're tilapia. So think about this. When Jesus says, throw your net on the other side of the boat, it's not the right time of day. It's not the right kind of fishing gear. It's not the right kind of fish that they catch. They catch the wrong kind of fish at the wrong time of day with the wrong kind of instrument because Jesus said, it's all about me. You know, in the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said when he called him, I'm going to make you fishers of men. What do you think the point here is? I called you to fish three years ago. You all ran away from me. But my call has not changed. I'm calling you to fish. I've restored you to fish. I've forgiven you to fish. I've given you grace to fish. I will equip you to fish. I will provide the catch. And when you catch it, I will call it your catch. And I will rejoice over the catch and over you. You see the hope in that? You see the joy in that? He not only calls us to fish, he gives us the catch. It's all about him. And all we need to do is say, okay, Lord, I'll fish. Fourth, notice the feeding. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. During World War II, the Nazis captured young German boys, ages 12 and 13, and they they called them junior Gestapos. Instead of coddling them, instead of caring for them, they treated them harshly. They gave them inhumane tasks. They nearly starved them to death. And when the war ended, they were completely homeless. Most of them wandered in the streets cold and hungry, and as part of the aid program to the German government, the Americans and the Allied forces began to gather up those young boys, and they placed them in tent cities where they had doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists work to restore them to health. It was a tough job. Many of the boys wouldn't be able to sleep. They couldn't sleep during the night. In the middle of the night, they'd be screaming out in terror. Then one day, a doctor had an idea. After feeding them a large meal, he put every boy to bed with a piece of bread in his hand, and he said, hold on to this bread until morning. And within a week, Every one of those boys was sleeping soundly through the night. After so many years of hunger, they finally had the assurance that they would never be hungry again. What's Jesus say to Peter? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. In other words, Peter, I have fed you. Now go feed others what I fed you. You see, Jesus is the meal. 
He is the one that every single person on the planet is starving for, whether they know it or not. You know the hope we have in Christ? The hope of a future? He never stops feeding us. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, love. And he calls us with full bellies to go to others and tell them where they too can find their meal. And fifth and finally, notice the focus. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? There's an old fable about the devil who was crossing the Libyan desert when he saw some of his compatriots trying to tempt a holy man. He watched what they did. One demon went to the man and tempted him with lustful thoughts, but it didn't work. The next one tried to sow seeds of doubt and fear, but to no avail. The holy man was able to resist all of those, and finally the devil said to the demons, move aside, give me a shot. The devil went up behind the man, the holy man, and whispered in his ear, did you hear the news? Your friend has been named Bishop of Alexandria. And all at once a scowl came to the holy man's face, and he said, it should have been me. Now think of this. Jesus has just forgiven Peter three times. He's just fed Peter. He's just reissued his call to Peter. He's restored him. He's bathed him in his grace. He's shown him that there is no volume of sin that is able to stop the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in a child of God. You can't sin your way out. And yet, in the face of all of that grace, what does Peter do? He turns aside and looks over at John and says, what about him? And the Lord says, in effect, none of your business. You follow me. You see, when the master calls you, when the master feeds you, when the master restores you over and over again, when you've fallen and he picks you up, when he imparts to you grace after grace after grace, when you get to know the fact that all that you do is a function of his grace, finally you begin to discover it's all about him. I love what C.S. Lewis said one time. He said, you know, there are people who are comforted by the fact that they love the Lord, not me. For me, there is no comfort at all in my love for him because it's so spotty. For me, there is comfort only in this, that he loves me. Not only is there comfort, there's hope. Last Sunday, Whitney Houston was found dead in a bathtub in Hollywood at age 48. You all know that. 
Days later, I got an email from a friend who wrote this. She is an example of what happens when we don't use our talents for God's glory. And on one level, I knew what he meant. But on the other level, I, the truth is, none of us do. None of us do. None of us can say that we've never squandered the God-given talents that he's given to us for his glory. Peter did. John did. I do. Instead of being an example of what a life is like that is squandering the God-given gifts, I think Whitney Houston is more of an example of what a life looks like when a life loses its focus on the only one who can give us hope. You know where Whitney began to sing? You know, church in Newark. And one of the first songs she ever learned was the exact song that she was last heard to sing hours before her death. Interestingly, four years ago, she produced an album of all hymns. And though I don't know this for a fact, I think what that suggests is the fact that Whitney Houston, after all of the years of fame and fortune and all of the handlers and all of the miscreants that wanted a piece of her, she recognized her hunger for the only one that could ever produce in her a sense of hope and security. And when you listen to that song, especially the second verse of that song, if you're anything like me, you may tear up. Because what she's singing in this song, especially the second verse, is exactly the message that she needed to hear in that hotel room in Hollywood. It's the message you and I need to hear every day in Penn Hills, Murraysville, wherever we go. And as I listened to it, I thought with tears, oh, if there had just been some disciple there, some restored Peter who was able to say to her, Whitney, that's it. That's the hope for your life. You're singing about it. Listen to those words because Jesus is right here and he's singing those words to you. Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, is our only hope. Without him, none of us have any hope. With him is nothing but hope. The first song she ever sang was the last song she ever sang.
And it says all she needed to hear. All you and I need to hear. When we fail. And when we lose our focus. And we believe the lie. That there's no hope. 